City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. acres and acres have just ridden over and uh, actually it was good running over, I must admit and I don't want to get this show off to a bad start by sounding cheery but um, <laughs> the but the last two weeks, has been, we didn't have much time to talk about it last week but there have been a couple of really good things, the Jacarandas would come out and when they come out I think it's wonderful at the time of season for their two weeks of glory <laughs> <laughs> and there's a wonderful group of them together, not individually not much but together in Edinburgh Gardens as I ride across and last week, I didn't mention it, but it was, I thought one of the most cheery things I've seen for ages was those conjoined twins being brought out of hospital in oh. sitting up in a pram, and I thought it was just wonderful. But anyway, there Kevin, you are. what's happened to you? I don't know. <laughs> so the rest of the show now has to be extremely depressing. Can we get back to the Herald Sun, please? <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to the Herald Sun. But anyway, we better say who we are. You're Meg, Meg Kimber, obviously. And Good got morning. Your, yes, and we've got Eugenia Zubchenko over there, who's sitting Hello. in a strange spot. Um, John McPherson over there, our regular transport commentator for the Hello. last... Last time this year, John. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah. And we've got Peter Flanagan, who came in a few months ago, actually, and talked about his trip to Japan and public transport. And now, he's, since then, he's been to Germany, so he's going to tell us a little about Germany this time. And, com- and compare it. And I'm Kevin Healy, and this is City Limits, and it is the first Wednesday of the month, and therefore we're talking transport. Uh, yeah, the Herald Sun, I thought yesterday was over, was wonderful. It probably could have given a bit more space, but it did have a 12-page wraparound about crime and um, all sorts of terrible oh, things. Oh, gosh. So, um, yeah. Someone should send them a memo and tell them the election's already been done and the Liberals yeah, didn't get that's in. that's right. Well, Mal- <laughs> well, Malcolm Fraser effectively said, you might as well get it over with. <laughs> Go and call an election and get it done. Oh, yeah, well, I meant the state election. But oh, I see, yeah, that's okay. done as well. Yeah, yeah that yeah. should. Well, we'll come on to that, I think, because they're, they're going to build lots more around. So the Herald Sun's still campaigning for the... Yeah, exactly, for the, for the, the state, yeah. Peter, could you pass me those cups? Thanks, I'll pour some more Getting ready for the next tea. one. Yes, yes. Uh, here we go. Now, before we came into the studio, you'll be sorry to hear that Peter, who had our tea last time he was here, when I said, cup of tea, Peter, he said, no. I remember that. It's seared in my memory. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So I think it may, <laughs> see. definitely means something. I can't believe you let him back in the studio. <laughs> well, I thought he'd... I didn't know he was going to say no, did I, until he said no. <laughs> but anyway, that's it. Um, look, there was a, there's a couple of interesting things. Uh, there's, there's The Financial Review every Thursday has a page called Sale Room, which is around art sales and um, galleries, etc. And just last week they had an ad for um, a mob called, called Deutscher and Hackett in association with Horton House, highly important works of art from the Bodan Expedition, 1800-1804. But one of the paintings is one by a bloke called Nicholas Martin Petty, and um, it's an Aboriginal woman, and you can see it, I'll show you, which helps the listeners know in, um, Aboriginal woman just squatting. Um, but the title of the... The title of the painting is Femme Sauvage de Lille Van Diemen, mm. Savage Woman. Of Van Diemen's Land. Of Van Diemen, or the Isle, I think. It's a very the, iconic, uh, it's a very famous picture. Is it? Yeah, yeah. but Savage Woman, I mean, God. Well, no, look, no, that's a literal translation. It may not be a, a, a fair translation from the French to the English to just swivel, swivel it over as Savage. 
John, why spoil a good story? <laughs> <laughs> because, because I think you need to just refine your approach a little there, Kevin. No, it is. Anyway. Savage may mean, may simply mean native in that, sen- in that well, context. Well, it may, it yeah, may, John, yeah, it may, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Peter's Peter's influencing. I'm going to be very picky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, our first item went flat as a tack. We can get get started on colonialism if we really want to. Yeah, we can. I mean, there's a lot to work on there. Well, there's aspects of it here because um, the head of Adani in Australia, which now says it's going to go ahead with a smaller mine but funded itself, um, he's come out. And uh, he says we have to stop demonising them. The time has come to stop demonising a project that could open up the frontier Galilee Basin for development. So talk about colonialism, you see. The frontier. Mm. Um, but he, he <laughs> said um, he said straight up, the sceptics and naysayers are wrong. The project is real, the funding is real, and we will be creating real jobs for central Queensland, which is all they care about. I mean, there's these people in India thinking we what we want to do desperately is create jobs for people Pickling. in central Queensland. That's true. It's all about jobs and growth. <sighs> yeah, yeah. But, Kevin, uh, I thought they planned to have a very automated mine and it would actually cost jobs on the other mines that weren't automated. So it wouldn't really create additional jobs for Queensland. No, that's true, but that will create jobs for central Queensland, which is the important part. That <laughs> right. In fact, they suggested some of the mines down the close, and even some of the mines in the Hunter won't have to close or, yeah, or certainly yeah. cut right back, yeah. Yeah. He said it's, it's, t- it's time the demonising, myth-making and political games stopped. Adani accepts there are people opposed to the project. Gee, they're alert. They're alert. <laughs> but debate should be on the facts, not myths, half-truths and deceptions. We don't, want to be a, we don't want to be a political football because this is about real jobs, real investment. However, it seems the minority of politics is opposed to creating, creating jobs, etc. Um, oh, and he goes on to say that they, you know, people have the usual line they make, people have a right to... A, protest, but they mustn't break the law and all that crap, <laughs> um, which I'll come to shortly in another area with you, um, actually, Meg. But, yeah, uh, it's good if yeah. you have enough money to influence the law. Yeah, mm. that's, that's right. handy. That's right, because they're, yeah. they're legal and therefore opposing them. And in fact, that's what Matt Canavan said, um, that uh, the illegal and you know, people who oppose them are breaking the law. But I'm wondering, when he says half-truths, does he mean that uh, they'll only half-pollute or something? <laughs> Um, no comment. I don't know. He did basically admit it as a truth, right? <laughs> I think it was more rhetorical than anything else. Um, I think he was just reading what the PR guy said, right. told him to say. But speaking of breaking the law, it's now law that a company can have what it calls itself the high end of the tourist market in what's always been a protected wilderness area in your home state, Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they're putting in a resort, which mm-hmm. will also include a helipad, in what is, and in fact, the World Heritage Council, in fact, a number of them, the World Heritage Council, I wrote them down, in fact, just mm. so I'd know them. The, um, the Australian Heritage Council, which said it would cause considerable damage, uh, the UNICEF World Heritage Council, which in fact has it on its own list of mm. World Heritage things, the Wilderness Society and the Aboriginal Heritage Council have all said it will cause irreparable damage. Mm. But an advisor to the minister, whose name is Price, well, there's a Price, I think her name is. Um, overruled all that and said, no, no, it will only call, cause minimum damage, minimal damage, mm. so they approved it. Uh, your yeah. comment as a Tasmanian? Yeah, the, yes. Well, consecutive Tasmanian governments have um, liked to 
play around with the boundaries and uses of the World Heritage areas. So, um, you know, probably people will remember when Tony Abbott was in government federally and wanted to, actually went to the World Heritage Commission and said, could you please take some of Tasmania off your World Heritage listing and um, was a laughing stock of, of the... Of the, you know, the whole sector, international yeah. sector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, having something classed as world heritage is no small feat, and um, does speak to the incredible values of that place, both for indigenous heritage and um, also just for the for mm. for the for what it is in the world, how rare, how rare it is and how precious it is. So, um, you know, this whole push, there's a lot of governments that have tried to have the boundaries, you know, there's logging right up to the boundaries, which has never been in service to the, you know, Tasmanian public, but most often in service to corporations and companies. Um, and then, of course, now that logging and mining are not so much, you know, not are a bit more on the nose, um, they want to make tourism um, their main way of kind of benefiting their friends and, and lobbyists. So, um, yeah, just changing changing the rules depending on, on who, who can profit from it, basically. Yeah. So. so they have great trouble just letting the World Heritage Area be a World Heritage Area. Yes, mm. yes, they really do, mm. um, which is really you know not clever no. in terms of the fact that the reason one of the reasons that we're seeing such a huge increase in tourism in Tasmania is because of those exquisite natural mm. values um and what good that they do for the human soul so you know people want to go there for that reason they mm. don't want to go there you know to see logging coops or no know, well have helicopters flying overhead in in the in the wilderness mm. yeah yeah, well, right. well, that's that's uh, well, my comment. That's, mm-hmm. well, as a Tasmanian, yeah. Well, they, indeed, you've, you've raised on the point that they they've actually said themselves that this could be the start of a fair bit of this sort of activity in these areas. That uh, I'm still trying to get my head around it. And at and a similar topic, uh, sort of like a related topic, is the push by the Bob Brown Foundation and other groups to have the Tarkine, mm. um, you know, promoted and and protected as a. Uh, important walking area and um, that is obviously a push to kind of reduce the amount of four-wheel drive tourism and logging and mining that happen mm. in the area. Yeah. So but but on, a, on a positive note, going back to the point we raised earlier, in fact he won a case, of course, saying that he wasn't illegal to do what he did in protest uh, uh, against the quite repressive laws but, against protest. Yeah, Tasmania, when Bob so. Brown took that yeah, to court. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was a positive, I guess. But I mean, at the moment, if people went out because of this this latest development with the helipad, etc., if people went out to oppose that, they'd be considered to be the criminals under the law. Yes, they made some very draconian anti-protest laws. Yeah. Yes. Well, they tried to. Yeah. Well, you can't even walk past more than two people walk past a, the headquarters of a mining company or something, can you? There's some ridiculous <laughs> law like that. <laughs> Um, in, without being arrested in Tasmania. <laughs> you know, People are just constantly getting arrested down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah fair enough. The, um, we mentioned, I'll, I'll, I'll raise this so we give a bit of a plug for next week's program. Last week we had the bloke in from Melbourne Water to talk about the Stony Creek damage, as you know. Um, and next week uh, we've got Helen Vandenberg coming in, who's a great activist in the Western So It's sort of our last energy-type day, so we're going to have her and, and Dr Patty Moriarty, Professor Moriarty out at Monash, uh, 
to come and talk about some of the stuff he's been doing this year. That'd be great. Uh, but um, just on top of that, because Helen's main activity this year has been the waterways of the West and getting the state to set up a committee to look at them. Uh, and I notice, and I think it's it's a positive because she's also worked very closely with and looked at the indigenous history of these waterways. As you know, she's mentioned on this program many times. Um, Melbourne Water Companies have recruited a First Nation manager to advise on Indigenous ways to better manage water. The four firms, including Melbourne Water, etc., said it was vital to tap in. So that's a positive, and we'll go more to that next week. But that's um, great news. Yeah. Mm. So uh, I really so, don't know what's happened to Kevin no, today. It's, it's all, <laughs> all good news. You seem yeah. confused with the summer spirit at the start of December. Uh, we'll get round to John, and it'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> It'll balance the show perfectly. Yeah, Kevin would be doing his Father Christmas imitation any minute, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the point I raised um, off air as we, as we came in with Gab in the studio, the last couple of, well, we mentioned, I think, a week or two ago that um, the Saturday paper had a front-page piece where Morrison had been a, the CEO of the Australian Tourist Authority and he'd uh, got, the, got the flick because he'd... Uh, because of all sorts of financial mismanagement, we made the point that this was the man who became federal treasurer. It wasn't that encouraging. Um, well, last week's paper, um, he also, before that, I wasn't aware of this, before that he was head of the New Zealand Tourist Authority, and he got the sack from there too. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sensing a pattern, and I'm not going to be surprised if it happens a third time. So. <laughs> yeah, well, he's heading for sacking again, isn't he? Yeah. But anyway, uh, despite he, cha- like he, he changed the rules to two-thirds of the party, but he's trying to make it two-thirds of the country so he can <laughs> give himself a rough chance of staying in. Um, but, yeah, he was there, and he, he, got, uh, he got the flick from there. It was due to all sorts of clashes with people and... Um, all that sort of stuff. But the, the Saturday paper, I this line, the Saturday paper also submitted questions this week to Education Minister Dan Tian, who worked as Chief of Staff to Fran Bailey, the Tourism Minister who fired Morrison. The questions asked what Tian knew of Bailey's concerns about Morrison's stewardship of Tourism Australia and the reason for Morrison's dismissal. They also covered whether Tian had discussed this with Morrison and why Tian had chosen to vote for Morrison in September's Liberal leadership ballot, etc., etc. Um, and it, it's, it's, this is the line that you'll find stunning. Tian declined to respond. Um, but then, <laughs> um, in Parliament, Matthias Corman was asked about... Um, these issues and uh, the, the, the Morrison's history in these areas and his response was, I can confirm that the performance requirements for the Prime Minister's contract were fully satisfied whatever that means Well, good to know Yeah, yeah. 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 so there you are it does sound though it's rising to his level of incompetence, though, doesn't it? Yes. yes. <laughs> well, amazing. I suppose if you, if nothing, if nothing's left and you've got nothing you can do, you become prime minister. Apparently, and yeah. do nothing. So that's it. <laughs> the prime minister sort of covers nothing specifically, so you can just sit there and think, well, nothing to do. It's good. Um, well, Turnbull's make, forging quite a career post prime minister. He's not shutting up. <laughs> no, no, no. It's yeah, they all take it well, don't they? When they yeah, they but, do. But yeah. I, I like the fact that he's actually brought in a rule to stop to stop others doing to him what he did to Malcolm and what Malcolm mm, did to mm, Tony, etc., etc. So, yeah. Anyway, look, let's let's take a quick break. We'll move on and we'll come back and talk about German public transport with Peter Flanagan. Okay, you're back on City Limits and that was Georgia State Line and that's the song called Older Than I Am. But um, Kevin made us fade it because we're getting a bit stressed about whether we'll have enough time for the transport things. Well, <laughs> we've, we've cheered people up too much. We've got to start. <laughs> we've got to get straight into the, <laughs> Although, the bad news. Well, I, well, we'll cheer them up. Well, I was going to say the, the news about transport in Germany could be good, but, of course, then comparing it to Australia, that'll 
put the yeah. yeah, that'll be right. Totally. Okay, Peter Flanning, and you went to Germany. Um, impressions, top of your head, tell us. Well, I think uh, Germany has a lot of surprises. I was mostly interested in the older and unusual styles of transport, but um, I found... Coming from Melbourne, you would. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Something familiar. Well, I found a diesel-powered tram and I found a water-powered funicular and I travelled on an elevated monorail. Um, Cool. The best part of German transport, apart from the fact that uh, it connects with everything else... Uh-huh. <laughs> there's an English button on the ticket machines. Though the trains can be late, and um, yep. and I travelled on a high-speed ICE train, ICE train, which only did 80 kilometres an hour. Um, but, well, let me tell you about the Schwieberbahn. In the German city of Wuppertal, there's an elevated monorail. It's been there for nearly 120 years. It's used by 80,000 people a day, and it's the equivalent of a tram. In an area where there was no space on the ground to put in railways, they had to elevate, and they only had a river. So they put in these arches and suspended a monorail above the river, follows the river for about uh, 10 kilometres, and then it goes down a narrow street for about 4 kilometres. Now, the advantage of one of these things is you don't occupy a lot of space on the ground. If you imagine a narrow two-lane road, if you put a bus or a tram down there, every time it stopped, there'd be a big bank-up of traffic behind. With this, you can still use the road for all the things that you want to do, uh, and yet you have your transport above. And, of course, here, often buses and trams get caught up with a big bank of traffic ahead as well. So, mm. Mm. so this is a, it has its own track. It's a, a two-direction track, so you have two going at once. It, unlike other things, you can have multiple um, carriages travelling in the same direction at the same time. So it's about every five minutes. 20 stations, 13 kilometres... Um, as I said, 80,000 passengers a day. So that's 25 million a year. So it's busier than some of our suburban rail journeys in Melbourne. Mm. Um, and speaking of suburban rail journeys in Melbourne, um, was you said that it goes down a narrow street for four kilometres. Were there houses on either side yes. of that? Yes, yeah. multi-storey houses on either side, historic yeah. houses on each side. People were walking on the ground below and uh, and people were driving cars below. And I'd be interested to see what the those residents thought when that rail line was built? Because obviously in Melbourne there was a huge uproar when the um, elevated rail was built here on the suburban As lines. Herald Sun says Sky Rail. How noisy is this thing, Peter? Well, it has metal wheels, right. um, like traditional railways, but it didn't seem that noisy. Mm-hmm. It seemed fairly quiet whilst I was in it. When you say, you're picking up Eugenia's point, when you say high rise, um, is it actually going... The, the buildings above it or around it? Or yeah, something. Bu- buildings do go above it, so you can look in people's windows as you go past. Mm-hmm. Whereas with our elevated railway, I have a friend who lives in Carnegie, and what we found when the new railway came in was it was a lot quieter than <laughs> what it was before because it had sound barriers on it. And one of the other noises which you you forget about is the boom gates at level crossings. Well, uh-huh. They're not there, so that sound's gone. And the requirement for drivers to toot 400 metres before every crossing and at every crossing 
is eliminated because there aren't any. Mm-hmm. So it, the elevated railway in Melbourne is a lot quieter than mm. it used to be. Mm. Yeah. Um, the residents were also really concerned about uh, light, I think, into their houses. So yeah, yeah. it's it's just a, a interesting, it's interesting example. The, the, the complaining, yeah, the mm. complaining seems to have stopped pretty yeah. much as soon as the thing opened. You know, yeah. Well, and, I guess it was too late. And it didn't. <laughs> and it didn't um, oh well, you know, the Herald Sun was still doing its best to stir yeah, it up. Yeah. yeah, but one of the big complaints was that that pedophiles and perverts would put, you know look into people's backyards. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that'd be bit of a fright, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it got ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, yeah. yeah. Peter, you also mentioned to me that you went on a vehicle that, I think we wanted to mention the diesel one in your introduction there, which actually works as a, a effectively as a tram or it operates with electric wires attached, but it reaches a certain point where they run out, but it keeps going. Well, um, Siemens um, have uh, a tram called the Combino, and we have some in Melbourne, uh, but the version they had in this small country town in central Germany, in Nordhausen, has uh, a diesel motor. So around the town, where there are um, catenaries, uh, electric wires, it picks up electricity and is an electric tram. And when it leaves the central area and goes out into the rural parts of that uh, neighbourhood, it pulls the pantograph down, turns on the diesel motor, and is a diesel electric tram. So, is it on rails? Yeah, it, it's all the way. Yeah, it, it's on um, a long-standing railway line, but the railway line then extends in. You, if you take the railway view, it's a train that comes into town and then goes around the town, but it's in the form of a, a low-floor tram. So the, the benefit's obviously that you don't have to change transport if you're going mm. out of town a long way. And it doesn't have to be diesel through the town. Mm. Oh, yeah. And then there's, of course, the train trams networks like Carl, uh, Carlsruhe, which is another. Well, that, that's part that's, of... That's different again, That's really. That's part of the um, connectivity of mm. German transport. You can have a tram platform at a railway station so you just get off your train from the next city, walk across the platform, get on a local tram, uh, and that's much the same as in Nordhausen. You have your long-distance trains, you have your local private network, and then you have your trams around the town, so it's all a big interchange with just a short walk between different services. Mm. What, what's the private network, do you mean? Like, um, It's called the Harzersmorschberbahn, so it's a it's a narrow gauge railway which oh. operates in this mountainous area, oh, well, okay. hilly, not mountainous really, yeah. uh, and they actually run an interurban service which is steam based railway mm. because they have the old steam trains from the the DDR days uh, and they're still able to use them and a, a lot of English people go there for railway mm. tourism. Oh, cute! That's awesome. Mm. Is it really picturesque? It is. Yeah, it's mountains and forests, and uh, when you get uh, in winter, you have snow there. So mm. some people like to see steam trains in snow. I didn't see any snow. <laughs> Sounds like yeah. the uh, perfect setting for an Agatha Christie mystery yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On a slightly yeah. shrunken scale, because these are narrow gauge. Oh, <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> Getting really specific. Oh here. yes. <laughs> That's right. Now what what I was the case of the shrunken. What scale. I was trying trying to get at was these things that are, that are tram trains. They operate as trams um, in town, 
and then they get to the get again they get to the um to the mainline railway network and they just keep going but now they're trains and um they have all the equipment on board to operate as trains and trams and Karlsruhe has a a big network in that region in Germany and there are other networks in other parts of Germany now as well and again this is part of this integration thing where where the um the rail network didn't have a station right in the center of town so what did they do? They decided to create a vehicle that could come in on the rail system and then just keep going onto the roads and run right into the centre of town as a tram. So is is this the kind of thing, is this something that would be good to try and do in Melbourne? Well, not not specifically in Melbourne, I don't think. Um, uh, although, not no, not specifically in Melbourne, but certainly parts of Australia it might be might be quite quite good. Yeah. But the interconnection would help here a hell of a lot. Well, uh, of, yeah. Of, of all these things. Yeah, well, certainly the certainly the integration in terms of being able to just swap, you know, across the platform from one kind of transport to the next, yeah, that would mm. be good. But we don't, even, don't seem to be able to manage that very well. Well, one of the other things that Deutsche Bahn does in Germany is they have an online thing, a bit like our journey planner, but it doesn't necessarily... It, it actually tells you the platform to change to. If you want to go from this town to this town, you take this train that leaves at this time from this platform, you go to this station, you get off, you change to that platform, you catch this train, yeah. uh, and it's wonderful. It, it works. It really mm. do they change uh, a platform. Yeah, yeah. it was going to be my next question, whatever, ease, of, ease of use in many ways, both in ticketing and just you know getting onto the thing. Well... The ticketing is very handy. I love the English button that you press on the ticket machine and everything's translated into English. Uh, and um, and then it gives you the options for the journey that you propose to take. And, and some of them are heavily discounted options. And then you can select your ticket mm. and you can buy tickets ahead of time. Mm. One of the things I think um, Germany and, and other countries in Europe are um, a good example of is long-distance, fast intercity trains between major metropolitan areas, which I think that, um, you know, obviously it's a huge expense, but uh, uh, like you were saying, John, about how trains usually can bring a person right into the centre of Mm. the city. Um, If we had that between Melbourne and Sydney and Sydney and Brisbane, for example, a fast train, Mm. like we have a, a train now that takes 12 hours, um, ten, ten and a half. On a good day. Okay, ten and a half on a good day. When I've been on it, it was 12 yeah. hours. Okay. But, um, you know, it's like a whole day or a whole yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if we had a fast train, it could be, what What would be the, if it could run at the speeds that the trains run mm. intercity mm. in Europe, what would it be, like three? Three, three to four, four hours. hours. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That would be city centre to city centre. Yeah. And make that it would faster be, than it, yeah. And you can sit there, you can just go to the city Get on the train, sit there. If you're a business person, you could mm-hmm. work while you're on the train mm-hmm. and then be at the centre of the other city yep. in, in a few hours. One of the challenges is a lot of the smaller towns want to still be a stop for a high-speed train because they feel they'll be left out completely if no trains stop there. Mm. So the challenge then is to give them some service but not give them the full service because 
the high speed train is then a slow speed train. Yeah, so exactly. But so what do they do in Europe? Because I feel like they would just have like these this many trains that run high speed and then this many that run maybe on a different line or something like that that stop regularly. Well, the best example I think is in Japan yeah. where mm-hmm. they have a separate track for the high speed trains. Mm-hmm. They still have local trains. They have multiple companies that maintain multiple routes between cities. And with the high-speed trains, there's one an hour which stops at all the high-speed stations, whereas the other one... So it's the slowest-speed train. Well, it's the slowest high-speed train. Yeah, the slower high-speed train. But I travelled on a German high-speed train, and it wasn't high-speed because in the Ruhr Valley there are major cities every 20 kilometres. And you think, 20 kilometres? You're not even out of the first city before you're in the second. Yeah. Uh, and, and so at times that train reached 200 kilometres an hour. I mean, it had a top speed of 350, but most of the time it was doing about 80 kilometres an hour, which is a, a good Victorian speed. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, it, it's not... It's not as if there's, it can't be it can't be managed, you know. Yeah. The, you, you hear you hear people criticise the Uber high speed train by saying, "Oh, the train will have to stop at Albury and Wagga and Cootamundra," and but you run you run as Peter's saying, you run um, three levels. You probably once an hour you run a non-stop train yeah. all the way, and then possibly you run on the half hour you run a train that stops at some of the main stations, and possibly another train once an hour. Stops everywhere. Yeah. Um, that you know, but you organise a mix of trains. The Japanese have three levels of s- s- trains on the uh, main uh, Tokaido route between Tokyo and Osaka, where the, where the Nozomi are the, the the fastest, and then there are two other levels of trains below that. So mm. the smaller places also get a service. Wouldn't be as frequent, mm. and obviously not as fast, but it'd still be a hell of a lot better. Than what our present rail network could could offer if we were doing something similar here on a on a more direct high speed route between Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, and if you do a thing like that, you can still get to every station. Mm. Mm. Uh, so if a person's travelling on the high speed train on the slowest service, and the, the train still doesn't stop at their town, they can get off mm. and change to the other track to go to their town. Yep. And what they would do is they would arrange it that the other train would be there waiting for them. And you just walk across the platform and there you are. Yep. Uh, and that's certainly the case in Europe. Yep. If there's a particular route that a lot of people are doing, they make it that the trains connect. Mm. Yeah, the, the Germans and the Swiss are particularly good at the connection connection stuff yeah and what about the price of tickets because i also had the impression that australian trains are pretty expensive compared to some of the european ones no no they're very cheap some yeah. european tickets can be quite expensive but they do offer big discounts under certain circumstances so if you book a long way ahead you get a much cheaper price and if you book certain packages, you can get a cheaper price. And so, also a student or, or a pensioner, they're pretty... Well, they you, get can, good you can buy discount cards. So if you're a frequent traveller, you buy a discount card and it, it gives you 25% off or 50% off for an upfront price. So you pay, say, $50 a year and you're allowed 25% off all your trips or you pay $100 a year, whatever. The other thing is... There are certain excursion fares 
which which are not obvious to the visitor. So when I keyed in my journey on the ticket machine, it offered me a price which was half the point-to-point price. And it was for people who want to travel on the one day, not on a high-speed train, but on every Mm. other kind of train, Mm. and they're travelling a certain distance. So they're they're trying to probably try to get people who, like business people, to pay quite a high fare, but then to offer quite a lot of... um, um, cheaper, uh, cheaper fares for for ordinary folk because yeah. trains is, trains are mass transport. Yeah. So you want you want to fill up every seat if you can, yeah. and it, if, even if perhaps somebody's not paying much, it's still better to have them in, have them there on, in a seat because yeah. the train's going to run whether they're they're there or not. And seeing listeners couldn't see you, just put ordinary folk in parentheses with your fingers. But yeah, just... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, here in Victoria, we seem to have the problem at the moment. We simply haven't got enough seats on the trains. I mean, the, you know, yeah, the more Geelong... people want to use it than can mm, fit. Well, the Geelong and Ballarat lines. during peak hour, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I think even outside peak hour now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, those lines are standing room only. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really, it's really got. Well, they're a victim of their unintended success. Yes. Yeah. yes. They, they made it attractive and now it's too attractive. Well, way back in the day when I started the fast regional fast rail, I didn't expect the popularity they got. They got In a decade, they got more than a doubling of patronage. Mm. Mm. I mean, it just goes to show like that, that yeah. you know, it's a great idea and people mm. want to use it. So. Mm. And also the free, I mean, when it's free on Christmas Day, I've gone on the train down to the, down to the coast, yeah. um, on the Geelong train to get yeah. down the coast, and um, and it's standing room only by about North Melbourne. Or yeah. You don't go through it anymore, but, you know, Footscray or somewhere. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, from there on, people are standing all the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one of the tricks they do in Germany is they have tickets called lander tickets. So each state of Germany is called a land, and they have a ticket which is for a day or a weekend, and it's every bit of public transport within that state. And it costs, say, 20 to 30 euros, depending on which land you're talking about. And you can add another person for a couple of euros. So the idea is to get people out of cars because it's a family thing. So you you might say, oh, we'll all go by car because it's cheaper than us Mm. all going on a train. So they offer a ticket. You all go by train, you get this this Mm. much reduced fare. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really um, important. I think I've been noticing this thing happening with like my circle of friends, where now that Uber has become so cheap, people kind of tally up the cost of three uh, tram tickets to get somewhere that we're all going, and decide that an Uber is actually cheaper, mm. which really mm. shouldn't be the case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, the blacks—I don't know if anyone knows the particular group—but a group called UB um, Park, a bloke called Mostel Howe, wrote a piece in the um, Herald Sun last week arguing congestion in Melbourne is costing our economy an estimated $4.6 billion, all that stuff. Um, the problem is only going to get worse, etc. And he blames, now he says, in part thanks to the increase in ride and car sharing services such as Uber, couple this with the increase in on-demand delivery services and population, and it's obvious our car use is likely to explode as is congestion. And he makes the point that you know, Uber is so cheap, with the point you just made, in mm. fact, mm. Um, that um, less and less people are using public transport for that reason. Well, the Uber, Uber vehicles tend to be cruising around too, because they're so they're they are, they're, yeah. they're, they're on the road. You know, they're not stationary. I think they tend to be moving, don't they? Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not which, sure how it works, which, but which there's definitely is, a lot of redundancy, people mm, driving mm, mm. from point A to but point B and then coming Ross, back empty. But did you see Ross Gittins had a really interesting article in The Age this week too. He was saying, be careful about assuming that, that congestion is always going to get worse, that in some ways cities of a certain size have a certain congestion level which tends to go with the size of that that city. Uh, and so he was also using the example, of course, we put in another massive um, freeway. Mm. That'll, that'll fill up with traffic because people will be enticed off public transport to drive their car again because they think they can do it more comfortably on the freeway. But then after a, couple of, after a number of years, everything will be jammed up again to the same level. And then the, then, the, then the pressure will be on, I'll build more roads again. And he's saying, well, you've got to be wary of that because you're not really ever going to get anywhere doing that. Um, mm. If you're going to build anything, build public transport. Mm. Um, Gee, we never said that, have we? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Look, let's move on. Peter, any more on Germany? Because we'll move on to the local scene shortly. But uh, anything we... Let, let me tell you about the strangest transport I've travelled on. It's a water-powered funicular. <laughs> now, funiculars are, are useful if you've got a steep slope uh, and you can't get the traction to get a train up and down. So it's, it's a pair of carriages with a cable between them. One's at the top of the hill, one's at the bottom of the hill. The one at the top goes down, and as it goes down, the one at the bottom goes up. Uh, you see these all over the place. Well, in Germany, in Wiesbaden, they had one that's powered by water, so there's no big motor at the top pulling the cable. What you have is you have a carriage at the top, carriage at the bottom, cable between. The one at the top has a tank, they fill it full of water, it becomes heavier than the one at the bottom, and as it descends, it pulls the one at the bottom up. <laughs> when it gets to the bottom, it discharges the water, and the one at the top so, takes on water. <laughs> Is there a waterfall nearby or something? I don't know how they get the water to it because the one at the top is at the top of the hill, so they must have got the water there somehow. But it doesn't require any great technology to make it work, just a tap. So does the water then get recycled, hopefully? I mean... Uh, well, there's always that prospect, yeah, but... Yeah. Uh, mm. You'd have to pump it back up the hill. I think yeah, it would take yeah, more energy than it would take to power the thing in the first place. Yeah, whack an engine on. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. I feel like that made sense a long time ago when there was a stream nearby. Yeah. <laughs> all right, look, we'll move on. John, um, all, all people in the studio, um, the latest... Um, it's great for Mikey, because Mikey's gone off the top and has, has mm. been... Yeah, it's... Um, it's it's no longer the number one um, complaint, complaint. To, the, to the transport ombudsperson, <laughs> ombudsman, but um, it's uh, it's been overtaken by the general service, late and cancelled services, etc. Have now had stripped Mikey. Not that Mikey's not doing a good job, but you know, getting complaints. But yeah, that's right. They're working as but, hard as yeah, they can. That's yeah, that's right. But yeah. but nonetheless, they've been knocked off by late and cancelled services, and the figures are pretty awful, actually. I mean, they, we you know we they keep you see the signs on the station telling you how good they're going, but. Uh, uh, for instance, only about 87.2% of V-line services were punctual, well below the government target of 92. But also on the Metropolitan Network, this is amazing, I, uh, 5,558 trains and 61,507 tra- 61, trams did not arrive on time. According to that, um, in mm. one month, I think, yes, in October, just in one month, mm. Now, 5558 trains and 61,000 trams, that's a bloody lot. Yeah, yeah. 
Reminds yeah. me of my trip to Europe, if I can interject. I was yeah. getting a train from London to Edinburgh, and there was this beautiful announcement at one stage saying that, because the train was running late, saying if you have been, if you've arrived more than 15 or 20 minutes late at your station, you can apply for compensation. Like, you refund your ticket. Isn't that great? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great idea. <laughs> so you paid for it to be late. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you don't, you don't pay for it to be right. Yes. Yeah, well, the other one, other point they make is um, part of the compl- other investigations have been focused on short shunting trams. Rip- I thought they'd stop doing that, but anyway, they do. Oh no, they've got they've, they've developed another trick. Well, have they? They swap the um, the run number from one run to the next one and pretend. Well, I'm trying to say they pretend one the later service is the earlier service. Or, oh, right. Yeah. Or yeah, that's clever. Earlier service is the later service. Mm. I'm not sure which way round, but they they swap the run number. Um, and this all just happens in the control room. And then they can say, no problem, it's all on time. Magic. Mm. Yes, yes, yep, it yep, certainly yep. is magic. Well, I think they game the figures. They decide whether a particular late-running service mm. is a cancelled one mm. and they call it the next one mm. or it's late. Uh, depending on what oh, figure yeah, they're yeah. trying to meet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> and the high cancellation rate of the 3.37pm service from Southern Cross to oh, Melton, yes. well, there aren't too many trains to Milton, so I guess if one, like it makes the upfield line mm. look regular, frequent. <laughs> um, so I guess if you, if you miss the, if the train to Milton doesn't come, it's a yeah, long way to the next sore, sore one. How, how regular yeah. are they? Oh, I think they're, I think they're roughly regular. hourly during the day and half hourly. Half early in the peaks or something like that. Yeah, yeah, not not very good. No. In the case of um, trams and buses trying to run on time in the traffic conditions that we have, I feel pretty sorry for those drivers. What do we know about the conditions that they're trying to work under to stay on schedule? Because as well as probably having, I don't know mm. what kind of conditions they have as as employees, but also I've seen people just. Snap at at drivers yeah. for running late when traffic mm. has been terrible. No yeah. one could possibly have gone yeah. any faster than they had gone. And obviously, it's mm. frustrating if you're waiting at a bus stop. But um, to get on the bus and then abuse the driver, I think, is a little bit unfair, especially since they're just trying to. I mean, yeah. somebody else makes the schedules based on what they anticipate the traffic will be like, right? So you know, what kind of? Well, almost every year the traffic gets has, does seem to get that little bit worse, and the. Um and the, um, the the schedules get lengthened out that little bit more, but often it's not enough. Um, and, you know, the, the, the powers that be claim to be doing things all the time to improve the improve it, improve things for the buses, but there's very little sign of it in, mm. in, um, in, in reality, and the same with trams. Well, Melbourne is different to other cities around the world because so much of its tram network is on shared roads. Yeah, 80% is on, sh- on uh, shared roads. And yeah. that means you are congested by the other traffic mm. and with all the developments in the inner suburbs with and which are low in car uh, occupancy, those people are going to be using the trams. Mm. And... Um, you need more trams, more capacity in trams, and yet the trams are held up in what traffic there is. Mm. So mm. there's got to be a solution, and it's one that's not going to look good for motorists. And mm. those yellow lines along tram tracks, of course, were designed to keep cars and trams separate, but it's never yep. ever been placed. Never been placed, no. 
Um, no, the police feel I've got better things to do, which well, I probably do. I think yeah. I mentioned it earlier before, I was on the Road Traffic Authority at that stage as the local government representative, mm. and every month I'd ask, when are we going to start policing this? Mm. And unfortunately, the, the main barrier to it was the Transport Workers Union, who objected mm. to their members having to um, get off the tram lines. Well, their, their members are in the white vans and trucks mm. and things like that, yeah. yeah. So, so as a also, result... Also, you know, also caught in, caught in heavy traffic. But it seems does seem that heavy traffic is just you know part of life in big cities, um, and um, to expect the tram to somehow function well in heavy traffic is pretty pretty difficult. Pretty what about, difficult. What about trip. something like a congestion charge, like London mm. introduced a decade yep. or two decades yep. ago? Yep. Would that work here? Oh yeah, there's no reason why it wouldn't work. There, they've been introduced a few other places as well now. Um, Scandinavia's got a couple, I think. Mm. And uh, yeah, the London one reduced the traffic in in the congestion in the zone by about thirty percent, mm. and that made life a lot easier for the buses and things like that. Yeah, I yeah. think the city of Melbourne took another approach, which might even be more effective, because it's less visible. They've removed car parking spaces mm. in the city, <laughs> so dun, you, dun, won't, dun, you dun. won't want you won't want to travel in a car if there's nowhere to park at the other end. And so if you remove all the car parking spaces, there's no point in travel. Mm. Cause you, and has it you, been effective? Because, mm. well, the fewer cars parked, yeah. Yeah. Mm. so they might travel through the city, but they're not travelling to the city. Mm. Well, we, had, we argued years ago, in fact, um, when we had a group called the Melbourne Transport Study Group, that congestion, in fact, could be a positive to get you know, to discourage mm. people to use cars, but they've got to have an got to have a viable public mm. transport system as an alternative. Yeah, and um, this would bring us, in fact, to the Herald Sun story this week about all the you know the the congestion on roads, the main congestion hotspots, um, and the real travel speed as opposed to the speed limit. Mm. But they make the point that sprawling suburbs across Melbourne have been left behind by poor public transport coverage and infrequent services. This was done by a mob called Here Technologies. Um, and um, the David um, Daniel Bowen from the PTUA, Public Transport Users, said even if there is a stop nearby, few people will use it if it's a typical Melbourne bus timetable of a service only every 30 to 60 minutes. This study makes it clear that Melbourne is falling behind in this area. To get more people out of their cars and onto public transport, it's critical that the state government funds extra services, trams, buses and especially trains, running frequently all day, every day, so people can get around easily without long long waits and without studying timetables. Well, John, well, we're well in my view, the, the thing that's mm. the worst of all is buses. I mean, the, the, you know, there's huge swathes of Melbourne have got barely any bus, bus services, and that's all they're ever going to get. There might be a rail line running you know, uh, say two or three kilometres away. But if you're going to get people from the outer, sprawling outer suburbs to the train line, it's going to be by bus. Yeah. And those buses have got to be frequent because, again, people, you know, most in the outer suburbs very often do have the alternative of a car yeah. because they've had to have. And and so a 40-minute or a 30-minute bus, bus service is, is not going to... It's not going to attract those people. It's mm. got to be a 10, in my view, it's got to be a 10-minute bus service. Yeah, one of the most frustrating things, I think, about the, the rhetoric around transport and public transport is that um, 
this th- thing like, oh, well, we've got some buses, but no one uses them. Mm. So why would we put more buses? Mm. Well, no one uses them because they're at inconvenient times mm-hmm. or they don't match mm-hmm. up with the other transport. <laughs> but, you know, this is you with public transport, I think you have to have vision. Like you have to mm. be like, this is and, – and, and planning. Like mm. see where people are living, see what kind mm. of major routes are congested, respond to those mm. needs and put something in and people will use it. But I think you've got to have a basic level of, of um, service that goes in everywhere. Yeah, um, which means which that some services do. won't be as populated yeah, as but, other but, services. But you will find that, you know, that, that the usage will develop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's chicken and the egg. Which comes first? This, mm. and, and, you know, if you look at, look at bus services that are frequent, say the, the Punt Road Hoddle Street bus, that's pretty well mm. used. And that works really well. I've waited mm. like two minutes for a bus there before. Mm. 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 Although it still gets caught in plenty of traffic <laughs> on Punt Road. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing that they think they can get away with a service as bad as a bus every 40 minutes mm. through a suburb and say, oh, you've got a bus service. That's, that, mm. You know, that's, that's not a bus service. Mm. Um, and the other approach is that they uh, send buses down some routes which seem to cover every street in the mm. suburb because they want to increase the prospect of picking up passengers. Mm. But if it takes twice as long end-to-end, that might distract or, you know, dissuade some people from wanting to travel on that bus. Yeah, that's another issue, that that many of the the bus services have got more and more indirect. Mm. Partly it's because they're trying to save a bus, you know, Mm. and so they think, oh, we can make this bus do two routes. But... It, it, but it gets more and more tedious. So you get end up the only people using the buses are the people with absolutely no choice, yeah. which tends to be kids and tends to be old people going mm. to the shops or the doctor. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there are far more people out there who would use bus services if they were, were good, and they did feed to the railway station and to the um, the shopping centre, just for starters. Yeah. Would be good if someone told it all this to our state treasurer Tim Pallas. I would have thought. Yeah. I, every picture I've seen of him since the election, he's been standing in front of a freeway, beaming at opening mm. something or <laughs> extending something, and well, just lead up to the collect to the exec to the um, what am I saying? The election. Um, the, there was an article. He said that the treasurer insisted their spending does extend to roads, despite criticism that the government hates roads, a perception fueled by the cancellation of the East West Link UT. The opposition has sought to exploit this by promising to spend a billion on regional roads, but Pallas pointed to the government's 943 million spend on regional roads, 100 million to upgrade country roads, 3 billion on suburban arterial roads, and 2.2 billion on outer suburban roads, in addition to the major Westgate Tunnel and North East Link projects that the opposition also supports. I don't think anyone would suggest for one moment that I do anything other than love roads, and we certainly won't disagree with that. <laughs> no. Mr. He was the roads minister, of course, Mr Pallas said, particularly on the urban fringe and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway... Imagine um, how sore he feels about being accused for not loving roads. Yeah. <laughs> how much more can I do? Well, <laughs> commenting on the election... I think, you know, the government would probably think that their promise of this um, orbital, you know, metro line around around Melbourne was one of their great great selling points. But, of course, it's 30, 30 years away to, yeah. before it's supposed to be, you know, even... Well, started in the next five years, perhaps, and finished in the next 30, well, they 35 basi- years. Well, they promised to, you know, assess the suitability mm. of it, right? Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, well, well I think... Um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm worried that um, that 
they'll be able to keep pushing that off into the distance and saying, oh, yes, yes, it's going to happen. Don't worry, it's going to happen. Well, this is this is the key problem, isn't it, in, in not just local politics but federal politics mm. is that things that actually are visionary, big projects that require a lot of investment and, um, you know, making of infrastructure um, are things that, that um, the current government are never mm. going to reap the rewards of. Yep, uh, except yep. sort of, you know, rhetorically or mm. theoretically, mm. people's like vision about them mm. as, as a particular type of party, mm. something that's going to invest in something. But mm. if it's 30 years away and the political cycle is like, you know, 24 hours, three years at the, at the best, then what do, you, what do you got to gain? Well, well the, the trouble too is that there are many more rail, rail projects that are needed, needed in Melbourne mm. as well as the orbital metro. You know, the orbital metro isn't going to fix everything at all. Uh, I don't know. I'm not even. I'm not even 100 percent sure the actual whole orbital metro makes makes sense. Uh oh. Yeah. Well, but, uh, it would it would yeah. dramatically change the landscape of Melbourne in a way that we probably can't anticipate at the moment. I think so. Mm. Well, change mm. the centralisation. You know, the moment yeah. everyone works in the CBD and lives mm. in the suburbs, this could just change yeah. that completely. You think? Mm. Yeah. yeah. But you do. <laughs> I do. But despite I the agree. fact that you argue that fifty years gives them time, they just keep saying it. Mm. But mm. but in fact, because because since World War Two in particular. Um, public transport has fallen so far behind in Melbourne mm, with the yeah. expansion of cars and roads yeah, and things. Yeah. You do need a 15 or 20 year plan mm. yeah. and governments don't think beyond the next term of government mostly. So, but, I mean, you need, but you need a plan, not the, what you're talking about. I agree with you. It has, to, it has to look at what we actually need in the immediate and plan to finance it and do it over, say, 15 or 20 years to give public transport a chance to catch up. Mm, mm. Why should it be part of politics? Why can't we get bipartisan approach on this, have an agreed set of projects, uh, and then mm. you know independently mm. evaluated for cost yes. benefit, uh, and then we just the governments can then just say each year, this is how much I can spend, and then mm. and then they just pick off the things from the top of the list. Yeah. I mean, I'll take that rhetorical question, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm it's sure Kevin has a few thoughts on why exactly. <laughs> Well, well, of course, I, well, 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 the, yeah, well, the, the answer is yeah. politics. Yeah. And, and um, again, Andrews will say, well, look, you know, talking about this, this um, orbital metro in the far distance, you know, that was obviously played well with an awful lot of um, marginal voters, you know, who, who probably got a bit excited by it and decided, oh, I think I'll vote Labor this time. Well, and I suspect that, was, that did happen. Judging just yeah. from the um, breakdown of, of age also in the studio and how people feel about it, I'm not sure about... The Kevin and Peter, but mm-hmm. Eugenia and I both think it's a great idea. Like it really res- mm. responds to yeah. to our way of thinking. Yeah. So yeah. maybe there's an an age thing as well in yeah. terms of young voters coming in and just being like, this is a good yeah. idea because a lot of young I- I- people are in the inner mm. north or that sort of area mm-hmm. and are constantly frustrated yeah. by this. Um, this transport system that we have that is bringing people into the city and then mm. back out of the city if you want to get anywhere efficiently. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Jeez, ageism now, ageism. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's... it's, it's um, I mean, yeah, well... We can only hope that, you know, there will be a lot of detail assessment about exactly where it goes because it... it it, it you know it has to be in exactly the right place to have the most benefit for people who live f- beyond it and people who ha- actually travel out to use it to go around and then come in again. Mm. It's, 
Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think, like, to the point that you were saying earlier, I think it is important to study what is happening at the moment in Melbourne, mm. but we've also got to have a vision for what we want in the future, which might not correspond with what exists currently. And that's where mm. I think something like this could be great. Like, do we want to have a centralised city where everyone's constantly travelling in and out, or do we want it to be a bit more dispersed? Mm. And well, what's the infrastructure that makes sense? It's a great way to wind up because we're out of time. <laughs> uh, but we can pick all that up again on the first Wednesday in February. Because <laughs> I'm sure public transport won't have advanced to the stage where we say we don't need to have a discussion anymore. Um, <laughs> by Christmas. February. Yeah. So um, there we are. And um, John, thanks for being in all, coming in all year. And I guess we'll go another year next year. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, yeah OK. And Peter, thank you for coming in again. And, um, thanks, Peter. My pleasure. And thanks. Uh, well, why don't you think, well, Eugenia, we won't think because she hasn't pressed buttons, but she has made oh, a contribution. She has made a contribution. Uh, but look, Peter, you're the guest. Thank Meg for keeping us on air and doing a great job. Thank you, Meg. My pleasure. I'll see you all next week.